How many of you guys have a garden or you grow flowers and you, you, you can't call those you know big yellow flowers in your front yard and backyard flowers, okay? You can't do that. But how many of you love to garden or grow flowers? Raise your hand. Wow, okay. Maybe I'm the only one. I know you guys have plenty of flowers in your backyard and they're okay. All right. Some of you, you're not being shy. Good. Something I have been experimenting with because we just had this huge tr oak tree in the side of our yard. And, and it always cracks me up because we have a very similar live oak in our front yard that's probably eight feet high, and the one in the side yard is like 30 feet high, 35 feet high. They were planted at the same time. But in this particular tree that is just monstrous, and we've had to cut it way back, um, I have flowers underneath it with a bench and such, and many of you have seen this, and I've kind of experimented with different types of flowers, and that tree is just so full that very little sunlight can get down, except in the early part of the morning in the late afternoon. So I have to choose a flower, and I've chosen sun patients that doesn't, don't need like a whole lot of sun. And this past year, I finally found one, and the, these sun patients have been doing great, and they've gotten really big and full. And now the thing about sun patients, though, is you have to watch them because they can wilt, and if you're not careful, they can die very quickly without water. You need to water them probably two or three times a week. So what I do, though, is when I water them, especially during the heat of the summer, the ground can get very dry, and I've got mulch on top of it, and I've discovered as I water them individually, there's like 20 to 25 of them, and I'm watering each one, I have to water them just a little bit, to begin with, and I come back and water them a little bit more, sometimes three times, because the I realize that when I pour, that when I the hose pours water on them, that the water tends to just run off. Now, maybe for some of our yards that you know you look over your yard, not much grass, which is kind of like mine. During the summertime, they can get cracks in the yard because it just doesn't rain. And the problem, though, is when the ground is hard, it's hard for the ground to receive the water. And that's the same thing with my sun patients. And I've got, to, I've got to pour a little bit of water on them and then water them thoroughly. But, you know, when, when, you know, flash flooding, it takes five minutes, doesn't help my yard a lot because the water just runs right off and it doesn't sink down deep. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this illustration is because today I want to talk about how our hearts, at least before Christ, they were hard. We're going to see an example of this in Scripture. As Paul was preaching, he realized that he was preaching to hardened hearts. Now, how many of you remember the parable of the four soils? Can someone tell me, what, it, what was the first soil that Jesus talked about? What was the first one? The soil uh, uh, found on what? The pathway. And when the seed landed on that pathway, what happened to the seed? Did it germinate and produce a lot of fruit? No. The birds came along because it just did not soak into the ground. And the pathway is hard, and as a result, the seed doesn't sink down, the water doesn't sink down, they don't germinate. The birds of the air come along, snatch the seed from the pathway, and nothing happens. There, there's no fruit, there's, there's no plants, no seed can germinate. But then in the last soil, the fourth soil, it was called the what? It was called the good soil. Now, here's my question. Can God take that first type of soil, the hard pathway type of soil, and turn it into good soil? Because if he can't, my question is, then are, are we just predetermined to have good soil or not good soil? I'm going to suggest to you, in view of the life of the Apostle Paul, his heart at one time was just like that pathway. He was a religious man. He wanted truth, but he looked for it in the wrong way. He rejected Jesus when he saw certain Old Testament scriptures. He didn't see Jesus. But God had to do something in his heart that was hard, to the point where he persecuted the followers of Jesus. And Jesus, you remember, bright light on, his road to, on the road to Damascus, he fell to the ground, he had a conversion experience. God, in that moment, used a miracle to take that pathway soil and cultivate it to become good soil. So when the word of God dropped on that good soil, 
it produced a tremendous harvest. So we're going to move. Uh, tonight is going to kind of be wrapping up this past sermon series on being salt and light. But with this idea of salt and light, now moving into a new sermon series on hardened hearts. And how can we reach the hardened hearts of our generation? Because if you're not aware of it, our culture is quickly, if not already, become a post Christian nation. And by that, I mean, and I don't think we're there, that we're there yet. I would say Europe definitely is. And we are following on that fast track, which a post-Christian nation is when they hear the gospel, they no longer continue, they no longer think this is the word of God. And it all has to do with how we view truth and therefore how we view Jesus. So truth is, has fallen in the streets. Isaiah says, truth has been kicked to the curb. Why? Because the seed is now falling on the pathway, on hardened hearts. They've kind of been inoculated to truth, and they call it by different names. And as a matter of fact, for the most part, and I'm going to get there during the sermon, we don't even recognize, in our generation, we rarely recognize what truth is. We call it by so many different names, and we are missing it. So today, I want us to look at the hardened heart. And we're just going to kind of get the engine revved up here just a little bit before we jump into that series. But I want us to see something here that Paul encountered when he was preaching to the Jews. Now, before we do, I want to I point something out to you. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, now you don't have to do, go there, but you can write this down, 1 Peter chapter, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 Peter, Peter says this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from, listen to this, the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. I want to suggest to you that Peter is, he says here in the very beginning, he's talking about God's elect, this is chapter 1, verse 1, who have been chosen, they've been scattered. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's only to Jews that he's writing, but I'm going to suggest that there are a lot of Jews that he is writing to, and they were the religious ones, they were God's chosen people, and he is now calling what they what has been handed down to them an empty way of life and paul makes it clear in romans 9 that the reason why it was empty is because they were hoping that by following the law they might acquire their own righteousness so that instead of the jews discovering the way of salvation now the gentiles have discovered it because it's not by following or observing the law but it is by faith alone so this empty way of life, even for the religious, or, or rather this way of life, even for the religious, was empty. It, it was devoid of, of life. It was devoid of truth. And they had taken some of these truths and they had misunderstood them. They had misapplied them. And so I'm going to suggest to you, and it's not just the Jews, but it's the Gentiles also. I was, I was born in a Christian home. I was raised with Christian principles. I went to a church that preached the gospel. My heart was like the pathway. God had to do something on my heart to create a good soil to receive the word of God. And the spirit of God impacting me did something amazing and opened my, opened my heart. And I received that truth when my brother, even though my heart was so resistant, I received the truth that my brother was proclaiming to me. So our question needs to be, as we're going through this series, how can God use me and use each of you to impact people in a way with truth? Because this is all going to boil down to truth in a way that God can take that pathway, that hard heart, and begin to cultivate it so it becomes good soil to receive the word. He can do it in an instant or he can take time, years. For my brother Rob, it took 15 years. For my brother Ken, he was 68 years old when he finally, God, it was as if God just opened his eyes, opened his heart, and yes. 
So on the one hand, God was doing something and certain events in his life. People were living the Christian life. My sister had a tremendous impact in his life. And God then began to minister truth. He began to start reading a book or two by a certain person that interested him. And through that truth and the witness of others, God opened his heart. We now can do this for others. But how? How can we do this? There's the hearts in America become so hardened. What can we do to help them? For God to use us to begin to cultivate this hardened ground, to plow up the the foul the to yeah the the fallow ground, as Hosea says. So I want you to turn with me right now to, into your Bibles um, to Acts chapter twenty-eight. This is going to be our main text for the day. But in Acts chapter 28, Paul encounters a group of Jews, and some of them believe, but some of them, their hearts are hard. And we're going to talk about this. Paul has been accused by his fellow Jews of preaching a different way of salvation, Causing people, the, the fellow Jews, to reject the law entirely, and that was never his intention. And then point them to Jesus that they believed was a cult leader. So they believed that he was stirring up dissension and, in essence, preaching a religion that caused people to turn away from obeying Caesar. So Paul eventually, the wonder arrest, he appealed to Caesar. He has now found his way to Rome, and in this last chapter, he calls the Jews, and there's many of them that come into his home. It's a rented home in which he is under house arrest, and he proclaims the gospel to them. And he explains to them why he is even there. And and they're like, we haven't even heard anything about this. And so Paul uses this opportunity to preach Jesus to them. So let's pick it up. Chapter 28, verse 23. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning, listen to this church, from morning until evening. That's a long time. So don't ever get tired of, you know, if I preach more than an hour, okay? I I preached a short sermon. (laughs) Paul's my cue here. Anyway, regardless, from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. We're going to read to that. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, so over 700 years prior, go to this people, this is God speaking to Isaiah, go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. And I want you to underline that word. We're going to come back to it. This people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all, underline that word, all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Some hearts embraced the truth that Paul was preaching, but others were not convinced. What did Paul say? Or what did Paul do in order to deal with those hardened hearts? I'm going to just tell you this. Number one, the main thing that he did is that truth 
was his starting point, and it was his end point. It was all about truth. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm saying this because in our day, I mentioned earlier, Isaiah says the truth has fallen or stumbled in the street. People want to call truth something different. People want to use terms like, that's your personal truth. And so this idea of truth, I mean, like Pontius Pilate, we ask, well, what is truth? And we're going to need to discover what is truth, church. What happens when your personal truth contradicts my personal truth? How do I deal with that? How does anybody deal with that? Is truth really relative? Thomas Kuhn wrote a book, um, Scientific Revolutions, and the whole idea is that truth, now he was specific with regard to scientific truth, but in our culture we just say, nope, truth. But scientific truth was always an approximation. And so as a result, we, we, we say certain things and say this is a scientific truth only later to find out, well, we didn't quite hit the nail on the head. This is now what we understand truth to be. And so as a result, people step back, and that book has highly impacted it, this, our culture, church, in which people now view truth, not just scientific truth, any truth as an approximation. We are only trying to discover it more and more. And, and the whole idea is that the more we become enlightened, the more we, the closer we are going to approximate the truth. Can I just tell you, that is utterly foundationless. And we need to just, well, why? How? And then when others hold this view, and many in our culture hold this view, England and those in Europe, they're, they're ahead of us, but America is following on its coattails, and we, have, we are becoming a nation that talks about personal truth. All religions are true. Have you ever heard that one? I mean, who are we then to say, well, that one is right, but that one is wrong? Okay? How, what gives us the authority to be able to do that? How do we discern truth, and what is truth? So Paul starts off with truth. Now, it's not just because these are Jews and he focuses on the Old Testament, because even in Athens, he's, when he's speaking to pagans, he's still focused on truth. And we're not going to talk about Acts 17 today, but we're going to look at this. Paul starts with truth and he concludes with truth. It is all about truth. And he wants to lay a challenge before them. And he says that basically Jesus is the Messiah. Now, some believed, but some weren't. But I'm going to tell you this. Paul sought to convince them. It wasn't as if, okay, guys, well, well, that's the way you view things. Okay, you know, that, that's all right. But I view things differently. Paul didn't say that. He, in essence, said, you are misunderstanding the truth. It's not that your personal truth is okay, because it's not. Who is Jesus? Either he is God come in the flesh, or he is simply, or was simply, a man who died in a grave, and he stayed there. But my Bible tells me, and there is no wiggle room in this. Yes, he died on a cross, but he was raised from the dead church for your justification, for our salvation, which we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. This is truth. There's no such thing as personal truth. There's no such thing as approximating truth. And that as, as, as man evolves or becomes more enlightened, he'll get closer and closer to the truth. There is a truth, church, and we are called to it. It's in the word, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We're, we need to, we need to, you know, why do I even believe that the Bible is truth? What about the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran? Why would I say they are not truth, though they may contain truth? Just like all religions can contain truth, but are they true? See, that's the question. So Paul starts, and he says the Old Testament, that is truth. And so the Jew that's listening to him says, okay. Well, then why do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Now, I want to, we could spend weeks on this topic, and I'm just going to point you 
to a passage that far more than likely than not, he, he, he had them look at. And this, this is, uh, turn with me, this is in Isaiah 53. This is the truth that he's connecting with them. This is the ground on which they both agree. Isaiah 53 is the word of God. It is true. But who is Isaiah talking about? So in Isaiah 53, starting with verse 4, I'm only going to read three verses. All 12 verses are absolutely profound, church. It says this, surely he, who is he? He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. In other words, whoever he is, was he, he, he came and he apparently did something with our infirmities, and it sounds like maybe he healed them, and he carried our sorrows. That's a bit enigmatic, but he, was, he ministered in some way. Whoever he is ministered in some way to our sorrows, to our infirmities. And then we considered him punished by God. Who is this? The Ethiopian eunuch, leaving a, apparently a feast in Jerusalem, going back to Ethiopia, riding in his chariot, was reading this very text. And Philip, prompted by the Spirit, walked alongside the chariot and asked him, do you understand who this man is talking about? And he said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? I want to explain it to you. Paul wanted to explain it to the Jews because in that time, they thought that a man would come and they, he, he, would call, he would be um, Ben-Judah and then there would be a Ben-Joseph. The Ben-Joseph would be the one who would rule. The Ben-Judah or Ben-Judah would be the one who would rule. The Ben-Joseph would be the one who would suffer. And so there was some confusion. There seems to be almost two messiahs. Are they one and the same? Are they two? And so when some people saw John the Baptist, they were kind of thinking, which one are you? And, and who is this Jesus? And there was confusion there, differing views. But very few, if any of them, believed that Isaiah or, excuse me, or the nation of Israel, as Jews today believe, was this. The nation of Israel was not this the fulfillment here. And so the question is, well, who would have taken up our infirmities? Who would have suffered? And somehow we would say, see, you're suffering because of God himself. He's really punishing you. But the Jews of Jesus' day, when they hung him on the cross, viewed Jesus exactly like that. You're being punished because you're a breaker of the law. You break the Sabbath because you heal on the Sabbath. You call people to believe in you for their eternal destiny. How sacrilegious could that be? Unless Jesus is who he said he is, right? And so he goes on and he says, but he was pierced, pierced. What a very specific word, huh? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities are sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Do you see this, that... Whoever he is, he was punished with the punishment that I deserved. That's why whoever he is, people, the we in this passage, thought he was being punished by God. No, 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 no. He was, the punishment that I deserved was now falling on him. I deserved that. Why? Because my sins, my sins, are the ones that need to be punished, and he was being punished for them. This passage was written somewhere around 700 B.C. How profoundly prophetic it is. And then it goes on and it says, 
in verse 6, uh, excuse me, at the last part of verse 5, and by his wounds, we are healed. And that word healed is many times understood, and we're going to see it even to, in our own passage today, means saved. Not just physically healed, but saved. Saved. By his wounds, we are healed. Something that is terribly wrong spiritually in us is going to be healed. Sins will be forgiven. As a matter of fact, the pat well, I'm going to hang on to that thought. I'll, I'll introduce it later. But So here is this passage, and he concludes with this in verse 6. And he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. All of us, Israel included. That's why they were going to be going into exile as punishment. We've gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the he of this passage. The iniquity of us. All. And who is this? Who is he? And so the Jews, as Paul's going over this passage, the Jews had their own ideas, and yet how accurately, how specifically Jesus fulfilled this passage. And there's many others like them. Where he would be born, for example, in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Many other passages about how he, be, how he would be crucified, and even later in this chapter, how he would be raised to life. There's over 300 passages that talk about Jesus. Some of them are so specific. Paul, no doubt, is touching on these one after the other from morning until evening. And he's trying to convince them, church, we cannot afford to step back in view of the assaults against Christianity in our day and yield to that stubborn heart that shuts out Christianity. In essence, our culture says, you know, Christianity had its day in our culture. No more. No more. And they try to censor and shut down Christianity. We've heard it all before. And hearts have become hardened. Paul refused to back down from these Jews. And he sought still to convince them. That's what we need to be doing, church. But there's a way to go about this, of being salt and light, with our lives demonstrating love and with our words convinced in what is truth. Today, are you convinced in what is truth? Maybe today you're convinced about the truth that Jesus is the only way, that maybe that the gospel is truth, but maybe you're a little fuzzy on a lot of the other issues. I'm going to tell you that the word of God speaks to these issues. Paul didn't back down. He still sought to convince them. He didn't yield and say, well, that's your to the Jews, that's your personal truth, and that's okay. No. He really sought at answering this question, what is truth? Is truth relative? For us in our day, we, we need to start even in the beginning, well, who is God? And is there even a God? Now, let people convince you. There's some uh, areas in America that are higher, higher than the average, but less than 10% of Americans are atheists or agnostics. But listen to this, 25% of America, actually almost 30% of America are classified as nuns, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S. They fall into this group in which they do not associate with any religious group or any religion. They are in the nun, N-O-N-E group. Now, atheists fall into that category, but many in our day and especially the young generation, fall into that group. The nun generation. Th there is no truth for them, because everybody has their own personal truth, or their own concepts of truth. Um, we need to, we're going to need to investigate this. Are all, are all religions true? Is it right to say this one is right, but this one is wrong? We're going to get into these issues. We need to ask this. 
you may be familiar with The Lord of the Rings. The author of that book and that series, if you didn't know, is J.R.R. Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien was a godly man. He was a Christian. He was a professor. He had a friend by the name of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was an atheist or agnostic philosopher at an Eng- at a, a, a university in England. I'm, I'm trying to remember which one exactly. They were friends, and Tolkien continued to present truth to his agnostic friend, C.S. Lewis, over and over and over. Tolkien never backed down. He never said things like, okay, well, C.S., that's your truth, but my truth says, no, C.S., there is a God. And that God loved you so much, he sent his one and only son to this earth to become that payment for your sin. And as C.S. Lewis began to investigate these truths that J.R.R. Tolkien was sharing with him, there came a day in which he realized the depth and the profundity of these truths, and he became a Christian. And C.S. Lewis has become one of the most prominent philosophers-slash-theologians of his day, and, and since he's passed away, I would say his day, but people read him regularly. He even wrote fiction. But he has impacted Christianity in a profound way. But J.R.R. Tolkien never gave up on him. He still sought to present truth to him. And so not only does Paul present truth, but he calls them to respond. He calls the Jews to respond. There's something that you need to do in view of this. Not only is Jesus Lord, but he needs to be Lord and Savior of your life. And so he was calling them to repentance. He was calling them to believe in Jesus, not just embrace the facts. Oh, okay, so Jesus was the Messiah. Cool idea. Write it down. No, if he is, then what does that mean for you? Now I'm going to put up here, I, I went over this last week, but salvation is what he is talking about. He is showing them Jesus, but that how he is the only way in truth, and that there is no one who comes to the Father but through Jesus, and that is through the cross and the resurrection. This is the gospel that Paul regularly preached. So I'm just going to call this salvation. We looked at it about being dead in sins and now life in Christ. On the left, you see all of these things, preaching the word that is absolutely necessary, No one comes to Christ apart from the preaching of the gospel. Now, let me just say this, that because of general revelation, that is, in God's creation, we can come close to an understanding of who God is. But we're not going to understand the gospel. We're not going to understand the depth of our sin and the need for our being rescued from it and who rescues us. That's the gospel. So the word must be preached. We discovered in Acts 2, when the gospel was preached through Pope Peter, that the people were cut to the heart and they began to ask questions. If this is true, oh my goodness, we just crucified the Lord of life. What? What do we do now, Peter? Tell us what to do. And there's an inquiry, a searching of the heart that's going on. And as you're proclaiming Christ, that's what's going to happen when Tolkien began to proclaim the gospel. At some point, that that fallow ground, that pathway type of heart, that hardened heart in C.S. Lewis began to be broken up and it became good soil. And eventually, it made sense. Why? Because the Father was now drawing him or enabling him. The Father began to open his heart. His, he was, the seed had been sown on the pathway of his heart, but God was doing something in his heart to receive the seed so that eventually there would be fruit and a harvest. So faith then responds to this gospel message. And, and when I'm saying the Father draws or enables, It's not like we are just kicking and screaming the whole way. It's not as if suddenly we're just walking along just so completely against God and suddenly, boom, I believe in Jesus. But something happens as God is cultivating the heart 
that God is humbling us, that we, we declare at this point, I'm, I'm convicted of truth and I'm convicted of my sins. And that's what they meant here in Acts 2 when they were cut to the heart. But they weren't there yet. They weren't believers. They, were not, now, they weren't regenerated yet. And so they say, what do we do? How do I respond? And he proclaims, repent and believe, okay? All of this is God's grace. All of this is. And now we're in Christ. Once we believe we're regenerated, we talked about this, looking at very specific passages in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, in John chapter 1, being born of God. And how does God do this? Through forgiveness of sins and not being condemned. That's Colossians 2, remember. Now we are justified. Now we are sanctified. Now we're bearing fruit. And all of this is this concept of salvation. We are now saved. And I want you to turn in your Bibles with me. If you would like, your version may read differently. I'm going to put a diagram up here and just walk you through it quickly so you can see it. Um, but this right here is from John chapter 5 in which we cross over from death to life through faith in Christ. And this is what he's calling them to. All of this is God's grace. We are not saved by our efforts. We are saved by God's grace. But man must respond. Man must yield and say, I surrender. I am devoting my life to you. I lay it down. It's yours. That is faith in Jesus Christ. All of us, not just some, all of us are called to this. Paul realized, though, that only some of them believed. Let me set this aside here. And I am going to have you as, you, as you're turning there, I want you to realize the profoundness of this passage. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we, verses 8 and 9, we discover the, ver- the simplicity of the gospel message. That it is by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of you. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Now, let me just say, what does the word this refer to? And this is not of you. I realize that there are some who say that this refers to what's called the antecedent. And I'm going to agree with them. An antecedent is simply something that precedes the word this. So we're going to look at this passage. Does it refer to faith? See, many believe that that is, that God actually gives us the gift of faith so that we believe. I'm going to suggest to you that's not what this passage is teaching at all. This word this is used 11 times in the book of Ephesians, and not one time does it refer to the very last word before it. Not one time. It refers to the main idea before it. So here's my question. Let's stand back. Let's look at this. Because whatever this is, this is also the gift of God. What gift does God give us? Look at this. By grace, we call that a prepositional phrase. Through faith, that's another prepositional phrase. So they're not the main idea of what Paul is saying. What's the main idea? You have been saved. That's the main idea. That's what this is referring to. It's not referring to faith. As a matter of fact, it rarely, if ever, in the entire New Testament, does the word this refer to the very the, the word just before it. It just doesn't. It refers to the last idea, main concept. And the main concept, get rid of the prepositional phrases, is you have been saved. So it's salvation. That is the gift of God. Salvation, God wants to give that to you. All religions speak about some semblance of salvation, something better than where we are, like the pig that wallows in the mire. We get that. We understand sin. We understand the problems of this fallen world. They're not all religions would call it that, but there's sin, there's problems, there's offenses, there's hurts, there's brokenness, however they want to describe it, but they would all recognize this. What do we do about this? Is is there any hope? And all religions want to provide a hope, but Christianity is set apart from all of them, church. And we're going to get into this a little bit more next week, but Christianity is the only one that focuses on God's grace. 
all others, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, those are the other three main religions, but all religions talk about how we can fix ourselves. Hey, they got it right. You and me, that's the problem. Personally, I think it's more you than me, but regardless, that's the, we are the problem, church. The problem is my heart. The problem is the hardness, though, of my heart. The resistance. See, that's why I'm dead in my sins. Sin has killed me, and it separated me from all of the life that is in God. How does that bridge, how, excuse me, how do I build that bridge, if you will? And so all other religions talk about what we can do. And it's all about doing good works. But Christianity is the only one that focuses on grace. And it makes it clear that our salvation, which is this gift, it's not of you. There is nothing that you can do to be saved. Faith is not a doing, okay? It's not a, a, a good work that you do. Faith is a surrender. Because, so that no one can boast. Can I just, let's understand this. That when one nation conquers another nation, and that other nation yields to the victor, there's no applause to that conquered nation. It's not like, way to go, guys. You surrendered. All right? No, it is to the victor that we applaud. It is God's grace that we applaud. I simply surrendered. There's no boasting in there. However, if there was something that I could do, maybe not just one thing, but maybe many things, maybe 10 things that I can do, like the Ten Commandments. If I could just keep those. See, now I'm a good person. But you see, the sin is still there. That is the issue. That's what killed you. Something has to happen with your sin. It must be washed away. It, God can't just wink at it. God can't just, just sweep it under the carpet. Or like when my girls, when they were little, and, and even Jim when he was little, I told them to clean up the room. And wow, when I walked in there, they cleaned it up. Except when I pulled the door open like this and looked behind it, that's where a lot of stuff was. I looked under the bed. It was covered, packed from floor to the bottom of the bed with toys and all of this stuff. And it was just kind of kicked under there. And then, of course, I very carefully opened the closet, but only a little bit because I was afraid an avalanche of toys would come crashing down on me. So, yeah, they cleaned it up, but they didn't get rid of it. They didn't put it back. And so there's still clutter. The problem with philosophy and other religions is that they try to clean up man. I try to clean up myself. I try to do better. Maybe I'll follow the ten commandments or the eight pillars or whatever it would be and god says no you can't do that it doesn't work that way god has to do something so god is the one who saves us i have been saved i didn't save myself i have been saved because it is not of you it is not of works what faith no salvation Salvation is not of you. Salvation is not of works. And I mention it this way because not of you and not of works in the Greek are, are, are parallel. They read exactly the same except for these two words. This is a, Paul is trying to show them a parallelism here. And this word of is the Greek word ek or ex in which it, it actually talks about out of or as a result of. And it's, it's pointing to this as the source. See, no, you are not the source. Works is not the source. None of that saved you. None of anything that you did caused God to say, wow, Diego, you are such an amazing guy. I'm just going to bring you into my, I'm going to wash away all of your sin. And because I, I want you, Cole, man, he is such a good guy. I like him. God didn't look at Cole and say, I'm just going to bring you into my kingdom. God had to do something with Cole's sin and with Diego's sin, and he had to do a lot with my sin. Okay? And I, 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 didn't, 
I wasn't saved by my good works. I was the conquered nation that simply surrendered. That's faith. And so as Paul is preaching this, he encounters something that opposes in verse what he's sharing. In verse 27, he says, for this people's heart has become calloused. Some of them in the group believed, many of them did not. And so his response, their response was that they just left, especially when he said this. In essence, he's saying the reason why you're not believing all of these scripture passages that he spoke to them from morning until evening. So that's more than six hours. The reason is because your hearts are hard and you're resistant. And Isaiah had something to say about you. These sins, and, and we're going to look at this even closer next week because we need to see an example in Manasseh. We're going to look at a king and we're going to just step back and say, what did God do? His heart was so hard. Their hearts were callous. That word calloused in the Greek means it has become thick. It's just thick. And when something is thick, like if a, if a, if a heart muscle becomes thick, thick it cannot it's not flexible it cannot beat properly and consequently eventually it can fail but when a heart spiritually becomes thick niv uses the term calloused we can use the word hard then it, it cannot function and when it can't beat the blood you die paul was telling him guys your hearts are hard and you're dead you're dead. I'm going to come back to this. I have more to say on this issue, actually quite a bit more. I'm looking at my time, and, and I am running out, and I want to tackle that issue. And so I'm going to incorporate it, more, this concept of a hard heart, I'm going to incorporate it more in next week's message and looking at Manasseh. And then how can we then appeal to hard hearts? But Paul, this is what he did. Look with me then in... Verse 28, he says, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Please understand, Paul, when he saw the hardness of their hearts, and they were filing out the door, he didn't say, See ya! Don't let the door hit you on the way out! He, he didn't reject them. Why? Because God had not just rejected them and given up or kicked them to the curb flushed them down the toilet. God didn't say, there's just no hope for you. God didn't do that. Paul wasn't doing that. He said, okay, I am gonna, when I am here, I am not going to just preach the gospel to you guys. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Now understand that it says in the very, in verse 30, he says, for two whole years, so this happened at the very beginning of the two years, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He had an open door policy. Whoever was hungry for truth, that's who we spoke to. And I tell you what, I can only imagine that he kept praying for those Jews that at one time stood in his living room and he proclaimed Jesus Christ, him crucified and raised from the dead and demonstrated it throughout the, New, the Old Testament and yet their hearts resisted and remained hardened. I'm sure he prayed for them and prayed for them. He didn't give up on them. He still loved them, but he only shared to those who were hungry at least those that initially had, he had spoken to. Whoever came to him, because understand he was under house arrest, whoever came to him, that's who we proclaimed Christ to. Church, we, we cannot afford to give up on this generation. God has not given up on this generation. God hasn't just turned his back on this generation. And, and next week we're going to see how in crucial periods in Israel's history when their hearts were hard and people were shaking at their shaking their fists God stepped in like I believe he will do in our day in this generation that God stepped in in those generations and he did something absolutely miraculous because know this that when the darkness becomes the darkest the light will shine the brightest and we're going to see that 
next week as we, as we look through these some passages. But I'm going to suggest to you, God is a foot. God has a plan for this generation. As lost as it is, as hardened and eyes closed, ears deafened, not wanting to listen, God is not giving up on them, and neither should we. I'm just going to close with this. There was a, a young man. He was probably 30 or early 30s. He had been in the army. When he, he, so he shared with me, because uh, I was doing my paint touch-up on one side, and he was doing his um, detailing and various things that it was actually a, uh, uh, a package that he would apply to certain vehicles when they were sold. And so he and I would get to talking, and sometimes we would talk for a while. But he just let me know right up front, look, I'm an agnostic. And I've been to church when I was 16 years of age. He shared his testimony with me. And something happened, and his heart got hardened. And then he stepped further away from God, and his heart got hardened more. And he stepped further away and further away. And the enemy was whispering lies to him. He embraced the lies. And as a result, he found himself in this season of his life as an agnostic. I took that as a challenge. I gave him some information to read. He read it. I willingly answered his questions. I allowed the truth of God's word to condemn him rather than me. I didn't need to do that. What is, well, what is, the Bible says this. And if God's, if the Bible is truly God's word and it's truth, this is what it says about you. And let God's word speak to his heart. And he said to me when we were done, and I shared some personal experiences. He said, you know what? Uh, I usually just push you, push you type of people away from me. And I usually uh, attack you verbally. But you're different. And I want you to know I'm really listening to what you have to say. And I'd like us to talk some more on this. And here's a guy... And when I first talked with him, you could, you could see the bitterness in his, in his heart, in his eyes. But God was in this process of softening his heart. Just as I was sharing truth, just as I was relating with him and loving on him. Now, I don't know how the story ends, though. I wish I did, but I don't. I shared a lot of truth with him, shared the gospel, shared why do we even believe in a God? Why do we believe the Bible is true? Why do we even believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And what does that even mean? And, and I just, I, I was very fallible before him. And as I began to talk with him, I saw his heart begin to open up. Something happened in which things changed in his life and, and he moved on and I've not seen him since. But I pray for him. Because seeds were planted on that pathway. And I still believe that God can take the pathway of his heart and make it good soil. Because that's what God does. He did it in my heart. He did it in all of your hearts. Can you just stand with me? As we go through this new series about how we can appeal to the hardened hearts of our generation, may God equip us. May God give us amazing opportunities to speak into people's lives graciously, humbly, lovingly, still seeking to convince them. And may God use us to impact this generation. Because some of those people, they may be in your own home or your next door neighbor.